Hey, everybody. Welcome to the World War Now podcast. This is our inaugural episode. My name is Conrad Franz. Really excited to be with you tonight. I'm joined by my co-host, Dimitri Kalyagin. How are you tonight, Dimitri? I'm doing all right. There's been some great events around us, and uh, there's definitely a lot to speak about on our inaugural episode. I'm looking forward to it, Conrad. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been this has been something I've been thinking about for a while. And um, if anyone follows me on Twitter, you know this is somewhat of a of a continuation of my popular World War Three Twitter thread. And in uh, this project for doing this podcast and this Substack, we're really trying to be the preeminent the preeminent voice of of geopolitics from a from a postmodern perspective, from a Christian perspective, an Orthodox perspective, and of course from the from the multipolar perspective. And we have many voices in the space today talking about multipolarity and uh, the post uh, the post globalist world we're entering into. But one of the big things we like to focus on here, and I have a fairly extensive knowledge on this, and I know Dimitri does as well, is the the prophetic element of the situation we're in today. And due to our postmodern, our currently our postmodern transition we're experiencing, I think it's only appropriate to really be putting the words of saints and elders about our contemporary times and what they said we would experience, putting that back in to the forefront of our epistemology and of our um, political thinking, because historically that's how it always was and this sort of the separation of of religion and politics and all these sort of things sort of come from the from a secular uh post-enlightenment sort of perspective on the separation of the church from the rest of society and we really hope that we can bring that perspective that um in an honest way and in a way that is edifying to both your soul and your mind and uh with that, I kind of want to introduce ourselves so you kind of know what we're all about. Uh, my name's Conrad Franz. Like I said, I'm a journalist. I graduated from the King's College with a degree in media culture and the arts. I have a minor in theology. I've worked for Dr. Steve Turley for over a year now. I write for his website and um, do other things for them. Um, I used to run a newsletter called The American Byzantine, and I have a few other articles here and there across the internet you can find. What about you, Dimitri? Thank you for that introduction, Conrad. Um, there's definitely a lot to speak about in regards to um, orthodoxy, geopolitics, and just the way Christianity co-mingles with the world events today. And uh, I think we wish to continue that age-old tradition of, you know, Christi Christians referring back to Scripture, referring back to some of their ethical and moral, um, moral uh, foundations in order to interpret modern events because they need to be viewed through a certain lens. Um, but regarding myself, I run a decently sized Twitter page uh, called Orthodox Canonist. You might have heard of it. Um, some opinions that I post are a little bit controversial. In regards to professionalism, I have an extensive interest in Russian history, Greek history, Orthodox theology in general, and I've been a member of the J. Dyer Discord for quite a while and have put in some decent work over there over the years. Um, and of course, we're looking forward to providing only the most biased Christian content, at least from our perspective. I think you'll find some of the content very unique and um, engaging. All right. And we'll look forward to engaging with you over Twitter and the other Internet social media sites. So 
Yeah, exactly. Um, we're going to be, we're on Substack, so uh, I'll have that linked below wherever you're listening to this. Be sure to read my first Substack article that I wrote. Uh, it really sets the stage for what we're doing here in a more, with a lot of links and a lot of context and information that if you're not as familiar with this multipolar metaphysical realm that we're about to take you on, you'll uh, you'll be able to get a little bit more into that. I guess I forgot to mention as well, I've been uh, an Orthodox Christian for three years now. Uh, and that's been, that's one of the most important parts of my life. And that's definitely the epistemological and spiritual basis, rather the Welton, the Weltanschauung, as it were, that Dimitri and I are going to be bringing all of this to you from. So with all of that, I'm going to hand it over to Dimitri and we're going to get to the stuff that you actually want to hear, which is what's going on in the third world war. Thank you, Conrad. Well, I suppose the great event at the end of September of 2022 has been the um, destruction of the Nord Stream gas line that has uh, moved gas, a, a lot, quite a lot of it, from Russia all the way to Germany. And its destruction, its sabotage, has not been actually placed on any single, any single country at this point. Uh, this major geopolitical event was probably the, um, you could say, the first casus belli for... Uh, World War Three, in a way, at least that's what the media pundits want us to believe, and I think it's, and I'm not sure if it'll exactly lead to anything, but definitely it's escalated matters to the point where Vladimir Putin, um, at the end of the day on September 30th, in his recent speech, uh, has mentioned that, uh, you know, Russia is extremely wary of the, of of its effects, and they even Russia's willing to. El- you know, uh, place certain blame on, on the Western powers, uh, on NATO, on NATO in particular, the Anglo-Saxon branch of NATO, so the United Kingdom, and the United States. Putin mentioning this in his recent speech is, of course, hearkening back to his, um, perhaps uh, his trailblazing and icebreaking uh, presentation at Munich 2007. Not sure if you're familiar with that, but in 2007, Putin traveled to Germany to a large international relations conference in Munich and gave a very famous speech, and this was almost 15 years now back, but it set a certain foundation for Russia and geopolitics and Russia's relations with Germany in that in, a, in that regard. Um, and now we see that sort of coming to a culmination Nord Stream 2 being shut down by the Russian-Ukrainian war and by the pressures from NATO as well as Nord Stream 1 being sabotaged you know Putin alleges that it was the UK and the US but until it's investigated further we're not quite sure as to who sabotaged this major gas line in Europe Um, I think that's the main subject of our conversation today because these news are at the forefront and there's plenty of professionals giving their opinions but Again, we need to remember everybody with an opinion comes from a certain perspective, and myself coming from a Russian Orthodox perspective, Conrad coming from an American Orthodox perspective, we need to give uh, these events some sort of um, some sort of uh, founding, at least in in the Christians in the Christian sense of the world, uh, how how we would view things from our um, you know unique paradigms. Yeah, exactly. I think that we've, I think people have this idea that, you know, we don't want to know what the people reporting on the news think. It's the total opposite. I w- we want to be as forthright as to where our Weltanschauung is, I guess you could say. And so that you can inter so that when you're listening to us, you know, the full perspective that we're giving you. So when you interpret other facts that we're going to interpret in the future, you can almost 
begin to have a feeling for what we may or may not have to say about it. And regarding the Nord Stream pipeline, I think it's one of those things where, you know, most people at this point, anyone who's a normie conservative has already posted a devillion variations of the memes about how, oh, the U.S. totally didn't do this. But I think it's, it's, it's almost a red herring who did it, because if anyone knows anything about NATO and EU geopolitics, you know that in particular the Danes and the Danish intelligence, who are the ones that are primarily reporting on this, are effectively another um, intelligence, uh, another branch of the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States. And they have a slew of options for uh, agitprop and infor- misinformation that they can put out to make it seem that, like, I'm sure they have plans to fill the polls under the bus. I'm sure they have plans to talk about how China was involved. I'm sure there's just all sorts of media narratives that we're going to be hearing from the people that don't want you to think that the Western powers committed a deliberate act of uh, economic and energy terrorism against the people of Europe to justify um, a further um, further incursion into Russia as well as further energy dependence on the United States. And I think now that uh, Putin has, like I said, Putin has annexed Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporozhye. Uh, he's signed another conscription degree that'll be bringing 120,000 more soldiers uh, uh, throughout November than the ones that have already been uh, brought in. I think it's pretty obvious that at the very least, we will be seeing an attempted push across the rest of the Black Sea, if not um, a much more targeted campaign against the actual intelligence and political apparatus of Kiev. And that, there's no going back from that. And the fact that Zelensky did his fast-track NATO application today combined with like every single nation's refusal to recognize uh, the new, uh, the, the fact that the people in eastern Ukraine, Donbass, and the southeast uh, coast of Azov and the Black Sea, they... Um, that they voted to join Russia, and it seems that no one is going to be willing to accept that. And if we see these two diametrically opposed issues, I almost see a very small chance that this doesn't escalate into a multi-nation hot conflict. Yeah, just wanted to add to that. I think it's important to remember, Conrad, and I think our viewers will understand that, uh, you know, every situation that occurs on a geopolitical scale that involves multiple nations, large amounts of wealth, there are always people who benefit. Now, who benefits from this conflict? I think, and this particular issue, this conflict of international interests, the destruction of the Nord Stream 1, the beneficiaries are certainly, and I don't think in any way, um, I don't think the beneficiaries would be Russia and Germany. Would you agree with that? I think somebody else is probably benefiting. Yep. And, uh, I don't see any way that Russia benefits from this, and definitely not Germany. Yeah, so um, at least when I was discussing this with some of my friends who are in economics, uh, the I think the main beneficiary would probably be not just the United States, now at least forcing Germany to submit and to essentially um, depend on its NATO membership, because as we know, Germany is a key member of NATO, but it isn't the head. Germany is simply, um, again, as Putin mentioned in a speech a few hours ago, Germany is uh, still a nation under somewhat of a military occupation, or at least under pressure from the United States to push a certain status quo, to not expand on its friendship with Russia, hence the you know destruction of the Nord Stream 2 project in the first place. 
Um, and so the, one of the beneficiaries, I believe, would probably be the United States. I think that's a safe assumption. The other beneficiary, so somebody who would benefit from the Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline being sabotaged and essentially uh, destroyed, would be Ukraine. I think uh, Zelensky and his government would benefit greatly now that the pipelines going through Ukraine from Russia and Kazakhstan, and I'm referring to the two gas lines named Brotherhood and Soyuz, um, those pipelines taking gas into Europe have become suddenly all, all too more important. So you can imagine, um, suddenly Europe now depends on the safety of these gas lines. They need to invest in peace. They need to invest in the, um, I suppose, the Ukraine. Ukraine needs to stand up. Ukraine needs to, you know, out, essentially survive the conflict. There's more reasons now why NATO needs to um, support Ukraine. At least they're forced to, to in, or, in order to continue the gas flow. Um, or, Essentially, Russia is pressured as well by this conflict into fighting the war in Ukraine on a very careful scale, not affecting the last gas lines linking it to Central Europe. There's a lot of... Um, so Ukraine and the America definitely benefit. I'm not sure how the UK plays into this because, of, uh, you know, according to Putin's recent allegations, uh, the United Kingdom is also somewhat involved. But especially with the recent death of Queen Elizabeth II, I think the UK has many more internal problems to deal with, to deal with rather than to get itself more involved with, um, you know, uh, Central European energy business. But, um, yeah, so Conrad, what do you think about the um, state of this uh, particular situation, how it relates to Ukraine? Because technically speaking, Nord Stream 1 it doesn't even run by Ukraine in any way. It runs north of Ukraine through the Baltic, and there isn't uh, there isn't any direct connection except for the fact that Russia's involved in a special military operation. And at the same time, there's been a lot of talk about Russia turning off the gas that's running f through its pipes and through the land of Ukraine. But notice, I just want I just want to mention before I hand it off to you that the gas lines running through through Ukraine, the Brotherhood and Soyuz pipelines, haven't actually been affected at all by the war. Russia has promised that it will not switch off the gas, and so maybe whoever's trying to force the pressure onto Russia is, um, or even people who are, you know, blaming Russia for sabotaging its own gas lines are just unaware that Russia has no intention of, at least at the moment, has not shown any intention to actually shut down the gas into Europe. They're holding steadfast to their commercial agreements, and they're not breaking them. So I'll just hand it off to you, Conrad, for a moment. Well, and frankly, I think the Germans would have been in much more danger of the pipes getting turned off at any point than the Ukrainians. The Russians don't want to, they don't want their newfound citizens that they would, that they might be coming across to be, to have their fingers frozen off. But in Germany, they, they, they took away a lever that Russia had to negotiate with. The U.S. just kind of took that off the table, assuming this was U.S. involvement. The U.S. really just took that leverage off the table that Russia had. And now I've been hearing rumors that People are scared of the Turk Stream uh, pipeline getting sabotaged. That's right, and that, and that really brings uh, the Ukraine and Turkish connection into this because Turkey is very wary and playing a very, very delicate game with what's going on in Ukraine. Erdogan is one of the smarter politicians, you could say, that's in the game right now, and he's been a friend of Vladimir Putin, but he recognizes that if he plays it too uh too close to putin one he you know, he already has his own disagreements with putin on his expansions into other other nations but 
he knows that the West wants him gone regardless, and he's already in an extremely precarious position with these upcoming Turkish elections. So Erdogan is trying to really walk this tightrope between supporting Ukraine uh, subtly and making it seem that they're not pro-Russian in any way, but also making it also look to the Russians like they're a neutral party and trying to be one of the main voices for uh, negotiation. And I know that the Turks don't want the U.S. to blow up their pipeline like they just did to the Germans. So <laughs> I know they're probably uh, doing a bit of scrambling right now with what they're trying to do to their who they consider their allies and not. But with Ukraine, um, they're, uh, the fact that now Putin doesn't have that leverage with Germany the and the Poles as well, with the Poles, that new pipeline opened with between them, that is a huge beneficiary. I just don't see how Russia doesn't really uh, doesn't really just increase the uh, the intensity. I think of the actual on the ground fighting at this point, and that's part of. I don't like. I I'd, I'd be love to be you know fly on the wall and hear like the correlation between the current new levels of deployment and conscription, or uh, at least a partial conscription that how that was spurred by these uh, this terrorism that was committed against their infrastructure. But with the Turkish thing, Erdogan is very, very wary of Russia becoming dominant on the Black Sea coast. And this is an ancient civilizational conflict that we also want to keep in perspective is uh, Turkey and Russia have been fighting for hundreds of years for domination on the Black Sea. And there's saints in the church that, dozens of saints in the church that fought in the Crimean Wars and other wars where like we're seeing today, the Anglosphere, the Atlanticist West, the British, allied with the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, the non-Christians against Russians, against Orthodoxy, against Christian Empire, against Imperium. And we're seeing the Turkish, like that's, these are the kinds of civilizational battles that are going to be happening as unipolarity has been shattered, multipolarity rises, and, uh, um, new epistemologies, new uh, the 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 importance of race, language, religion—they're back. We're we're returning to we're returning to what I like to call the real world. I think where things are starting to make sense again. This hundred-year lull of of actualized modernity, of of enforced globalism is—it's the the spell has been broken, and it's really going to bring a lot of these age-old civilizational battles to the front and. One of the prophecies that we really are going to want to talk about a lot is St. Lawrence of Chernigov, who explicitly talks about what's going on now in Ukraine. Back in, He reposed in 1950 and was born in the Russian Empire in Chernigov, which is today Ukraine. And he explicitly says that in a time that will be known as the Little Peace, which he calls the time between the fall of the Soviet Union and uh, basically now, or like the actualization of, of, of I guess... Uh, antichrist or something like that or the third world war even between those times there will be extreme strife in the church among ukraine which we know there's a big any orthodox christian would know there's a huge schism this which was directly prophesied by saint lawrence and he explicitly talks all about a war between russia and ukraine as a proxy between russia and the west and how that will expand into a into a global conflict so i think we're seeing like everything that's going on right now with the with the way the sides are being taken and with the way um, that energy is being weaponized and with the way that um, language and nationality is being brought to the forefront of of these of this re-territorialization that Russia and other uh, civilizational states are engaging in. Um, 
it's just a further example of why we're really doing this show, you know, because we're seeing prophecies be fulfilled. We'll see, we're seeing age-old things come to the front, and it's, and I think it's, again, it's not good. It's not bad. It's not. It's not that we like to see people die. It's not that we, uh, at the same time, don't appreciate um, a change of of things. It's just this is this is the reality that we're living in, and a lot of people are gonna not, um, I guess, understand what's really happening because of their their immediate aversion to um, to any kind of, I guess, disruption or pushing against the status quo that we've had for the past century. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of my perspective on what on where that takes us with this new this new status quo. What are you What yeah. are you thinking, Dimitri? Look, I was going to say, Conrad, the uh, inclusion of Turkey and Turkey's in some way kind of forced itself on the situation. If you recall, in April, right before Easter. Um, Turkey was the middle ground for the peace talks as well, quite early on, right? And now we see Erdogan essentially hosting the um, some of the POWs for the exchanges, participating in that quite actively. And of course, modern history has shown that Russia and Turkey have, uh, you know, butted heads at times. Um, and not just in, you know, in a political military sense in Syria, right, where Russian and Turkish visions of the future of Syria, especially the northern Syrian conflict, um, did not align. And even today, Erdogan is walking a very fine line between his NATO membership and between the fact that uh, him and Russia are technically still economic allies, and they do actually um, have very active military treaties on and which what kind of military treaties not in terms of defense and and you know alliance but military trade treaties and russia is still a major ex exporter of military technology so there's that to consider but also i think the um touching upon christianity turkey and russia you know the two of these great civilizational forces you know one of them being the ottoman empire and this is turkey in the past and the Russian Empire, the Russian Sardom, it's like essentially these two were the juggernauts of, you know, the Islamic and the Christian civilization, um, respectively. We have we have had so many saints produced in the through the interaction of these two civilizations. I mean, most importantly, you can recall saints such as uh, Saint John the Russian, who served uh, in the Russian in the early Russian navy under Emperor Peter the, the Great who essentially was the first Russian emperor. And St. John the Russian was a Russian sailor who was taken prisoner and eventually ended up in Greece. Uh, his relics are still in Greece to this day. At that time, Greece was occupied by Turkey. And so you have these exchanges throughout the last 300 years between Turkey and Russia, not all of them amicable, but producing these, uh, you know, very palpable results across time, in, even, you know, into, you know, this is felt even in Christianity as well. And one more thing um, regarding Christianity in Turkey. As we all know, uh, the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, Bartholomew, his seat is in fact still in Istanbul, still in the Fanara district. So Erdogan also has that ace up his sleeve, and he's not actually um, touching on the patriarch subject too much. The fact that the, um, the patriarch, the hierarch of the Orthodox Christian Church, essentially rules out of Turkey is also important and of course this touches upon the subject of you know the Ukrainian uh, the Ukrainian semi-schism or the breaking communion between the Russian and the Greek churches the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Patriarch of Moscow um, these are all very active unresolved issues that are still pending and they're still on the table we're not sure which way it'll go but even two years ago when this issue began or three years ago now 
um, people are mentioning that uh, you know it will this does feel apocalyptic in scale it does feel like there will be maybe a world war you know involve involving Russia and Turkey in some way and you know unfortunately some of these predictions they're they're not seeming too untrue now that Turkey's actively getting involved in the Ukrainian situation maybe not in a military sense but in a diplomatic sense and uh, yeah there's definitely a lot going on in St. Lawrence of Chernigo the great saint um, who lived during the period of Soviet um, of the Soviet Union he's one of the few Russian saints who actually lived under Nazi occupation when the when the when the Nazi Germany conquered most of Western Russia um, from especially Belarus and Western Ukraine St. Lawrence lived for about three four years under Nazi occupation from where his prophecies originated his prophecies are of course uh, very explicit. I encourage all the listeners to go read read them yourselves because uh, this is not something that can be um, accurately as passed on via audio or that we can even paraphrase properly. These are very powerful prophecies about the future, but one of them, of course, relates to Ukraine, Lawrence's St. Lawrence's homeland. St. Lawrence does prophesize that there will be a time of peace, as Conrad mentioned, and this time of peace will come to an end, um, this, this period of intermission. Um, between uh, great events, and uh, I think these times are definitely upon us. Um, it we are living in a very interesting age when there are great powers involved, great civilizations, uh, both Islamic and Christian, and of course at this point uh, post-Christian, in regards to the West. Um, and you know, there's definitely it's definitely time to sit back, read what our great saints have wrote in the last 150 years. And uh, consider modernity in that light. Um, let's not ignore their wise words. I've said that better myself. And I think we should let's stay in the uh, in the Aegean for a little bit here. The Turk thing is we got to make sure people recognize as well. If you read, be sure to read my my Substack. It it provides a lot of great links and text content as well as the the exact words of Saint Lawrence and his prophecies. Um, but with Turkey, let's. What are the two other one of them is a lot hotter than the other, but the two other hottest conflicts right now are, of course, between Armenia and Azerbaijan and Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And both of those conflicts are heavily, heavily Turk-involved. Um, three out of four of those involve thing, uh, countries you would call in the Turkish, like the Turkic belt. Um, Ar- Azerbaijan is effectively just uh, a, 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 an exclave of Turkey at this point, despite their Sunni-Shia difference. Uh, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan is, uh, these countries have a high level of Turkish admixture and Turkish, uh, Turkish populations living there. So there's, there's definitely a connection there. And as we see like with Armenia and Azerbaijan, that's one of the most obvious religious clashes between the oldest Christian nation in the world. And then, you know, the vassal of, of the greatest of the current, you know, one of the two or three Islamic superpowers, the other one being Iran, which of course is getting closer to Russia and China and has even moved against Azerbaijan recently, which is an interesting aside. I'm sure we'll discuss more. But again, staying in the Aegean, this takes us to Greece, of course, which is, in my opinion, Greece is one of the in- most interesting national cases to study as uh, World War III unfolds, in my opinion. Many of the prophecies, if not all of the relevant Greek prophecies, involve no fighting in Greece about peace, that they won't experience necessarily the brunt of of warfare. But in many ways, they'll experience economic and cultural degradation of an unprecedented level. 
The main person we like to talk about of this, of course, is Metropolitan Neophytos of Morphu, who was the inspiration for my World War III thread, and in, in my personal opinion, one of the most um, necessary and impressive living saints to be witnessed today. He's only 58 years old, and he's the spiritual child of St. Paisios, St. Porfirios, and St. Yakovos. One of my favorite stories is each of those saints respectively prophesied the three major kind of events in his life with uh, St. Paisios prophesying. I can't remember which was which, but all three of those saints did one of these things, prophesying to him when he would become a monk, when he would become a lawyer, and when he would become a bishop, all very much exactly. And I believe it was St. Yakovos would like always accidentally call him Neophytos when he was young. And he was like, why are you calling me that? And he's like, oh, you'll find out. And I think, um, and he is, of course, spoken in, in, in no uncertain terms on both the, um, the issue regarding the pandemic and lockdowns and vaccines and stuff like that, as well as the war that we're currently living in. And if you check my thread, as well as my article, it, it says, Metropolitan Yofitos believes we're living in the second year of the, of the Third World War. And that... And he lives in Cyprus, of course, and there's all sorts of... Um, he believes that the Turkish occupation of Cyprus will end and that um, uh, they'll need troops elsewhere, all these sorts of things. But Metropolitan Neophytos was a... Um, again, even before he... Before all this war was starting, he had all sorts of... He had talked about Ukraine, he had discussed things about Russians coming in, and he had discussed... One of the biggest things he said was the week before the lockdowns, he said that you're living in the last um, week of the world, the last normal week of the world, where, um, and he says after that, you'll enter into a new mode of living where fear will reign. And I think ever since the COVID thing started, that's one of the best ways to describe the world we've lived in. We've kind of, the, the media, the powers that be, whatever whatever you want to call it, they really, we, we, we saw an increase in, in in a desire to make us anxious and a desire to make us make us uncertain, which is very much against the spirit of peace, the spirit of God. And Metropolitan Neophytos makes it very clear that though some of his prophecies are dramatic, and though he says, like, I'm not being hypothetical anymore, I'm saying prepare, repent now, the whole purpose of these prophecies is, is that perhaps in the prayer and repentance of the people, some of these horrible things that have been foretold will actually um, not come to pass, or at least if they do, be much less dramatic, because we know that prayer is efficacious, that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, as the scriptures say, and this, this point can't be, cannot be stressed enough that if you're going around looking at prophecies and thinking that you're going to figure out exactly what is and isn't going to happen in the world, like in a, in, and then you're going to beat people over the head for disagreeing, that's not the way you need to go about it. The key is to understand, to get a perspective, to, get, to be able to clear your head, to not, be, to not be afraid, to understand that God and his saints are, they hold this world through their prayers and that to evangelize the Christian, the Christian gospel, and to pray is 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 the ultimate medicine for this for this these 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 interesting and terrible times that we seem to find ourselves in. And Greece is, of course, a NATO country, as is Turkey. But despite both being in NATO, there's really no greater military, political, cultural, I guess, um, battle going on right now. Literally, besides, I guess, Armenia, Azerbaijan, like which is all has its has a the Armenians and the Greeks are very much in the same boat when it comes to their relationship with Turks. And the, the fact that Greece is both in NATO and has a very, very secular government influenced by the West have supported Ukraine. Despite that, Russia has not, Russia seems to be very much 
aware of, I guess, the orthodox connection between Greece and Russia and are remiss to, I think, treat them the way that other nations might, who have done the similar things through the poor actions of their um, globalist government. I think Russia is aware of that, and I wouldn't be surprised. I think I think the prophetic understanding that Metropolitan Neophytos gives us about the relationship between Greece and Russia is accurate. Yeah, I would also add, I think Metropolitan Neophytos of Morphu, as well as Metropolitan, say, Seraphim of Piraeus, these great Greek hierarchs of today, you'd never see them actively criticize Russia or what Russia is doing in the Ukraine. Most of the time, they speak about their own affairs in Greece, things such as, you know, the COVID lockdowns, vaccine mandates, but they never, and sometimes they even criticize, say, the ruling synod in Constantinople or the ruling synod of Athens, Greece, but they never actually go out of their way to critique Russia because um, they are, at the end of the day, Greek and Turkish bishops. They do not, they know their place in terms of God has placed them in that land and it's not exactly up to them what happens abroad in Russia, even though Russia has plenty of its own problems. In a, in, a, in a similar way, we don't see the Russian bishops actually actively criticizing the Greeks either. There is this mutual understanding that even despite a break in communion between uh, two church jurisdictions, the hierarchs still showing mutual amicability and love, and I think that's uh, very good, actually, despite all of the issues that have occurred in the past three, four years. Um, I think it's a good sign. It's very hopeful. And, of course, that reduces anxiety to some to some extent, because um, anxiety does trickle down from the top if uh, two synods of jurisdictions are arguing for the, you know, in the church. It does trickle down to every individual bishop, and from the bishops to the priests, and through the priests to the parishioners such as, you know, ourselves, myself, Conrad, and uh, our colleagues and peers in the church. So we do feel that there is um, something strange, something is amiss. We don't live in a time of peace, that's for sure. That's been proven in the last two years, even in, you know, the spirit of peace has been, um, uh, has been infringed upon, I think. It's worth considering Metropolitan Neophytus' words from, I believe it was February or March 2020 when he gave his famous uh, sermon at Coffee Hour, I believe it was after the liturgy, and he mentioned, as Conrad said, the world has entered into a new phase of fear and uh, anxiety will reign, peace. Um, yeah, so I think it's worth considering that. And look, uh, we've the news the news have has been getting worse and worse over the last two years from the pandemic to now we're you know in 2020 we're considering world war three essentially and it's a real it's a real threat we have the two greatest powers in the world nato and russia the two nuclear super alliances essentially facing off in this uh, great hot conflict in the middle of europe i would also add um despite you know the Aegean being home to many Orthodox Christians and Turkey and Greece being fundamentally Christian countries, at least uh, historically, right? It's also worth considering Ukraine as as a land is, in fact, very Christian and is thoroughly, uh, it's thoroughly um, dominated by Christian tradition. It's from its foundation, you will not find any signs of, say, paganism or other other religions have very... Uh, very small effects on the history of Ukraine and its traditions. Ukraine is home to over 30 million Orthodox Christians. That's a lot more Orthodox Christians than there are, say, 
um, I don't know, even Greeks in the world. Ukraine is one of the hearts of, or one of the heartlands of Orthodoxy. So the fact that it is affected now is, um, is I think, I think it's right. It's in some ways correct that we're very anxious about these events in world history. I think it is a clash of civilizations, and Ukraine being at the forefront is a, a huge tragedy. But we can't avoid the tragedy by hiding our heads in the sands. I think it's correct to listen to our hierarchs, uh, you know, listen to the prophecies, and of course pray. Pray for peace, pray for the salvation of our neighbors, pray for the salvation of our own families in this time of strife. Exactly. And uh, what you brought up about the civilizational importance of Ukraine to Orthodox Christians is people need to understand that that was where Russia received the faith. And what we know today is as Russia and, you know, with its capital in Moscow, that is that is the actualization of Kievan Rus and the actualization of of the conversion of the Russian people to orthodoxy. And in many ways, this podcast is going to get into all sorts of crazy and fun details about Dugin and about monarchy and about all sorts of ideas. And Dimitri and I have talked about this a lot before, but the the understanding, this isn't even an orthodox understanding. There's many, many, like... There's even a plurality of like normie historians that would agree with this. So this isn't some Russian nationalist talking point, of course, you know, of Moscow as the third Rome. And in many ways, if Moscow is the third Rome, then Kiev in Ukraine is Carthage. And because as Aeneas came from Carthage and came to Italy and was the, is the mythological, I guess, um, basis of the Roman Empire. Kiev and Ukraine is that to what many would consider now the actual capital of the Roman Empire, which is Moscow, Third Rome. And of course, the argument for that comes from the Paleologos, you know, dynasty being um, intermarried with Ivan the Terrible and um, him as Tsar, and then his expansion, of course, then his then the accession of that into the Romanov dynasty is viewed and met by many as having a a continual claim to the Byzantine Empire, and. To understand that in the context of the 1500-year Christian Imperium, which, in my opinion, is one of the most important and overlooked historical realities, proving and verifying Christianity in the Christian timeline, is we had almost exactly 1500 years between the accession of Constantine and legalization of Christianity and then the assassination of Tsar Nicholas II, who, I believe when that happened, we really saw Christian uh, empire, Christian civilization kind of finally step down to second place, I guess, on the civilizational pillar again, which in my opinion, I don't, I would never go so far as to say the end times began at a certain time, but a new era closer to the end of our, the end of our world began with the assassination of Tsar Nicholas II and his family. And that directly impacts what's going on right now in Ukraine. And there's, there's no way to overlook that. And with, um, with all of that in mind, there were many prophecies about that to Tsar Nicholas himself. St. Seraphim of Sarov it was said that he had a letter for the Tsar that would canonize him. And it said that after Tsar Nicholas read that letter that was given to him after St. Seraphim's canonization, he was, he was terrified, he was petrified. And many believe that that told him what he was going to experience. So there's this, what we're experiencing now is Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun, but at the same time, every new second is infinitely novel in the diverse energies of God. So I think it's, it just can't be stressed enough how much a robust Christian understanding of history is, is, is going to help you navigating these crazy days. 
Yeah, I think an absence of a Christian worldview will really um, render most folks into confusion and excessive anxiety. Well, to the point where, you know, uh, if one does not believe in a life after death, death is already a lot scarier than it should be in reality. Of course, death is unnatural to us humans created in the image of God and... Uh, the fall of Adam and Eve and humanity itself being infected by sin has made this a reality and death does feel unnatural to most of us it is scary because it that is what it's not natural to the human state God did not create humans to die so um, you know the fears of a world war where flame is engulfing the entire world and everybody perishes it um, it isn't exactly unfounded I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you know, fear of death or fear of some sort of collective death is just an atheistic idea. Now, I think Christians are also quite wary because we all want to go out at least in some way prepared for, you know, death. We want to have confession. We want to uh, make sure we're welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. We want to, uh, we want our consciences to be clear, but it's very hard to clear your conscience when there's so much anxiety and just so much, uh, you know, diversity of thought going on and most of that thought being negative of course and uh, everybody arguing about ukraine everybody arguing about various issues of church jurisdictions for us christians at the moment it isn't an easy time to clear the conscience and um unfortunately these last two years haven't helped with the pandemic and all the debates concerning the various illnesses um uh what i did want to mention conrad i think it's interesting that you mentioned kiev i think what the view, what the listeners and as me and Conrad already understand, and even Kiev, Kiev as a city is uh, a shrine of Christianity and Russian culture. Russians have never considered Kiev a second-grade city. In fact, it would be inappropriate for Russians to even grade Kiev on any sort of um, scale. Kiev to Russia means what I don't. Maybe what Washington D.C. or New York means to the to America. If Moscow is equivalent to Washington D.C., Kiev is equivalent to say. Uh, New York or one of the other foundational cities of the American history it's it's absolutely a shrine of orthodoxy and uh, there's a reason why the saints have even spoken of you know the various domains of the Theotokos the cities where you know the blessing of the mother of God resides and Kiev is one of those places it has a slew of monasteries and great saints the Kiev is rich in Christian history and regardless of who sits upon the presidential throne in Kiev and who runs the parliaments and um, how dirty the streets are at the moment or what kind of advertisements align, align the roads or the people who walk them, the city itself is a valuable um, part of the Russian and Christian civilization. Even, I would even go to say the entire, I think even Western denominations will find Kiev a place of some importance. So... I don't, regardless of how far this escalates, I don't see Kiev as, um, I don't see Kiev as the Mordor, at least of, uh, at least as like a sort of bastion of evil. I see Kiev as a city occupied at the moment, from a Russian perspective, of course. It's occupied by uh, certain dark forces, and those dark forces need to be exercised. And the saints, uh, they say no less than that, and it's true. Yes, of course, I as Conrad said, we need to view things through history and through the Holy Scripture. It's good to reference Ecclesiastes, but I'd also say um, we can look at examples of, say, the prophet Jonah who spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. Why did he jump into the sea in the first place? That's because God informed Jonah to travel to Nineveh, the great Assyrian capital, and to tell the, Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, to repent. And Jonah thought the 
whole escapade was silly. He thought the Nineveh, you know, the Syrian Assyrians would never repent, but God and you know God emphasized that yes, he needs to trust in Him and he needs to go to Nineveh and repent. And Nineveh was saved from God's judgment. Seventy or eighty years they existed more than say um, than they would have if they continued to sin. So. Uh, so the same goes to Zelensky and, of course, the folks sitting on the Kievan throne at the moment. They can always repent in the end. Uh, God always gives a chance to people, regardless if they're Christians or not. Like, the Assyrians were definitely not Orthodox and they definitely weren't, didn't belong to the tribe of Israel. But God still, you know, accepted their repentance and he forgave them and he gave them more, some more years of life. And I, I agree, perhaps Ukrainian independence at the moment... It's uh, it's definitely still on the table, but for us Christians, we we do view a potential future where you know this could end in a peaceful way if, of course, there is repentance, if there is, um, if there is an acknowledgement of past wrongs, and now that things are escalating, it doesn't seem like it seems that that opportunity to repent is fa failing, like we saw a few hours ago um, after Putin gave, gave his presentation. The first response by Zelensky to Putin was, oh, well, um, we're not going to have any agreements with Russia at the moment because Russia is occupying Donbass, Crimea, Zaporozhye, and Kherson. So we're not going to actually negotiate at all. So, look, it seems that peace has, again, eluded us, at least in this last week of September. And we're looking at uh, not an example of Jonah, of Prophet Jonah and Nineveh and a story of repentance, but we're looking at a story of... Um, yeah, we're looking at a story of Rome destroying Carthage. We're looking at a story of um, the Assyrians eventually coming to attack Israel and destroying the Northern Kingdom. We're looking at a story of where God will perhaps punish those who stand up against him and who stand up against his values and ethical norms. Um, I think we'll speak about, say, the Ukrainian conflict more in depth on a later episode. There's a lot to talk about here in terms of culture. But yeah, it is worthy, worthy of consideration that... Um, I think, I think Ukraine still has hope. He still has hope on existing as a in, as an independent nation, no matter how absurd that may sound. Uh, and we can evidence that through, say, church history and scripture. God has forgiven even the most um, unrepenting of people. You know, I mean, initially they were unrepenting, but of course, through their uh, repentance, they survived a bit longer. Um, but at the moment, Ukraine is not really going in that direction. It's not looking too good. I'm not sure what you think about that, Conrad, um, about that opinion. I know it's a bit controversial coming from, you know, a radical Russian such as myself, but... No, I appreciate that you brought that up. I think it's a very interesting thing that needs to be discussed, and it's something that I think a lot of Christian commentators on politics are... They're, they're so afraid of the national spirit. They're so afraid of invoking the national spirit. And I believe you always do need to caveat it with an understanding that, yes, when I say something like Ukraine is the hotspot of organized criminal degeneracy going into the West, I don't mean that everyone in Ukraine participates in that by any stretch of the imagination. But with what he's talking about, with this sort of spiritual damage, the when 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 organized crime and when when a when a mafia like the the Western intelligence powers and their, the way they run drugs and, and prostitution and human trafficking and all these unsavory things through what has effectively for many years been a failed state of Ukraine that that that, that has spiritual consequences. And I also just wanted to say, I think I might have said Carthage earlier when I said that Kiev is the Carthage to uh, Moscow's Rome. I meant Troy. I might have said Troy. Yes. Maybe I didn't. But I meant, I meant, of course, that Kiev is the Troy to Moscow's Rome and that 
uh, Saint Vladimir would perhaps be like the Aeneas to um, to uh, Dmitri uh, Donskoy or some or um, or even uh, Prince uh, Alexander Nevsky, and I I think that's an important thing to recognize when you view this through the Christian story, which in many ways, like the Roman story, is the Christian story, of course, and the and when it comes to this understanding of the spirit of an empire, the spirit of a nation, it's it's. It's, it's no use to dismiss the idea of collective repentance or collective guilt in a, not in a, uh, not in a kind of, like, I'm not talking theologically right now necessarily, I'm talking civilizationally and the, the way that we are responsible for the actions of others. This is something that comes up in Dostoevsky, of course, you know, in Brothers Karamazov, the, the holy characters have this desire to repent for the entire world. They have this desire to take upon the sins of everyone and, and give them all forgiveness from God. And that is something that is totally lost in the West, in many ways in the Catholic West and definitely in the Protestant West. And to see it in the Orthodox East is very jarring. And we're seeing, like, we're about to reach a tipping point where I'm going to see more, like, at this point, Serbs, Russians, and, um, you know, Christian Arabs are going to be, like, I'm seeing more and more calls of them as terrorists than even, you know, the the straw man Muslim terrorist we've been so, we've had forged upon us in the West since 9-11. And that's something that needs to be reckoned with as well. Of course, as Christians in America, I, of course, have many friends in Rokor, in the Moscow Patriarchate, and other jurisdictions. And it's a known fact that they're directly under CIA surveillance. There's, if they send informants to parishes, even non-Rokor parishes, there's all sorts of rumors that perhaps we can get into in a public or private episode about what is going on in this country and how important the U.S. State Department views the American Orthodox Church in geopolitical world events, which only vindicates the entire thesis of this podcast, of course. But in regards to all of that, we can come back to Metropolitan Neophytos, who I just think it's so appropriate that, in my opinion, the holiest hierarch that we have today exists in one of the most, at least in the urban areas, degenerate countries, Cyprus. Nicosia, Cyprus, and the capitals, they're, uh, they're multicultural, you know, Test tube, gub gub, snail man, you know, Zog world, hell, whatever, whatever uh, meme uh, cultural slang we want to put behind this. Like they, they send their Euro, their, their Eurovision song every year is about like worshiping the devil. They, it's, 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 it's a very sad, sad state for an orthodox. Well, and this is another kind of thing that, cause this, does this spiritual rot perhaps come from having, is it easier for this to arise when you have your homeland cut in half under Turkish occupation? That's a question perhaps for another day, but we, this message of repentance that we've all been able to hear from Metropolitan Neophytos due to the internet is very much directed, of course, at the people of Cyprus. And while he does say that they perhaps will be spared military fighting, he very much talks about food shortages and the fact that they will need to transport things on donkeys and all these ideas. And he even thinks that it'll be the job of the Cypriot Christians to evangelize and convert the Cypriot Turks to the north. But Regarding all of that, there's, there is going to be this reckoning in the West, and we may not get land fighting in America, but I'm telling you all right now, and you can even, I don't want to put myself in a prediction box, but I would be shocked if in 6 to 12 months we are experiencing unprecedented levels of food price increases and shortages of certain goods in America, and then especially you're going to see that in certain countries in Western Europe and other countries along the supply chain along the, the NATO globalist-dominated supply chain that are going to be uh, the unfortunate victims of, 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 of secular narcissism. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring it up because um, at the moment, the only players seeing a major 
spikes in inflation or at least fears that the future could collapse in a, you know in an energy and a food sense would be of course the the west and uh, the russia isn't experiencing anything like of that sort yes of course uh, inflation in russia is also a great fear but sh in terms of shortages i have family in russia i have friends and colleagues who i work with and none of them are mentioning anything anything of the sort um russia does not seem to be as affected at least at the moment now one of those reasons of course metaphysically would be maybe perhaps because russia is embracing christianity more strongly you have putin quoting scripture almost in every single presentation that he's given in the last year and yes um i think that's uh you know, we have George Bush, of course, quoting scripture as well back in 2001 and two. but this is a little bit different. We have someone who is an active member of the Orthodox Church. Last I recall, George Bush did not belong to any particular denomination, or even if he did, you never saw him, say, attending Mass as much as, say, you'd see Putin every year during any of the great feast days standing in church with a candle and actively participating. I think it's, uh, Russia is definitely getting the long end of the stick in this, uh, regard and um yeah us living at least some of us living here in the west would it i wonder how it will impact us orthodox christians because we're essentially receiving we're going to receive the short end of the stick on in this the energy and food crisis regard when things do escalate and get out of hand especially this coming winter of course in europe winter starts in december so we in a few more months we're going to see the effects of not only the um energy crisis but also the uh, absolute you know at least partial collapse of the european economy how that will impact the united states um i think metropolitan neophytos would probably um be completely vindicated in the fact that he has warned christians in the west to repent and of course all christians generally but especially those of the um those from the greek jurisdictions uh, cypriots and of course cyprus is Let's not forget Cyprus today, regardless of its uh, fallen state, Cyprus is a, an ancient hub of Christianity. It is one of the first jurisdictions actually to receive autocephaly um, in a very titular fashion. Like, um, I, think, I believe Cyprus received autocephaly in the 5th century, which is really early on. And there are. You can let me cut in, Dimitri. Yeah. I'll let you keep talking because you're on a great roll. I apologize, but. I think one of our episodes, we're going to even have to do a full dive into the Metropolitan Nikiforos of Kikos, who's one of the uh, Metropolitans of Cyprus. Mm -hmm. He has the definitive book defending the canonical Ukrainian Orthodox Church against the schismatics and denouncing the ecumenical patriarch's decision. It's a fantastic book. It's 90 pages. I encourage everyone to read it. And he like, There's all sorts of, fan of, of, of quote mine examples that show that, yes, the ecumenical patriarch has, in, the, in history, done a lot of granting of autocephaly and is the first among equals. But... You brought up the autocephaly of Cyprus. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to say the autocephaly of Cyprus in the Second Ecumenical Council is definitive proof. No matter, It does not matter what, what quote mine or in what flowery language that you see talking about the EP mm -hmm. is a definitive refutation of the EP's claim to the ability to grant autocephaly unilaterally to another um, jurisdiction within another patriarchate. And I we'll, we'll talk about that more in a future episode because that deserves 45 minutes of its own. But I just wanted to bring that up. Go ahead, Dimitri. No, absolutely. I think it's worth considering that you know, Cyprus was granted, granted autocephaly not by the wishes of the head of the of Constantinople himself, but also by the wishes of the emperor and the other great autocephalous archbishops. So that is, and you know, it happened at an ecumenical council. So it's worth considering this conciliar approach to granting a nation its own jurisdiction. Um, 
Of course, this has little to do with, say, uh, the spiritual state of the nation. It's more so to do with the administrative side of things. Can a nation govern itself in, in a spiritual sense? Um, right, you know, the Ukraine. Ukraine is a good example. Ukraine has given us many saints over the last several hundred years, but never had an autocephalous, completely independent jurisdiction until the early in this century. So. Um, we see that actually autocephaly and church independence on a on a world scale doesn't actually kind of uh, doesn't grant anything besides say some sort of administrative benefits and even then that needs to be assessed on a conciliar collective level rather than what we see in Ukraine where the um, ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew unfortunately kind of uh, coming from this uh, singular dictatorial um, idea that the EP can grant you know, autocephaly without any foundation whatsoever has given it to this, you know, to a, a gang of defrocked bishops and clergy. I think that's somewhat unprecedented and it has nothing to do with Christian tradition. Um, and of course, uh, it really gr greatly affected the Russian church. Um, we're still going to kind of have, we still have to digest this issue in a future podcast, but it's definitely a big talking point and it's probably one of the reasons why this Ukrainian conflict is kind of bringing us into this world war sort of stage. It's, you know, where there's spiritual strife, there is bound to be physical confrontation. I'm not surprised that this uh, breaking in communion that occurred in 2018 and 19 has led to this February 24th special military operation. I think the two things are linked and I'm not saying that the blame of the special operation existing falls on Patriarch Bartholomew but it is worth considering the words of these wise Greek hierarchs who you know they write about the issue and they say look this is um, an un unprecedented event how can the Greek leaders uh, grant uh, autocephaly um, si singularly without consulting their Russian um, partners in the church to this new um, unvetted Ukrainian assembly of bishops. This is uh, completely unprecedented. And of course, events such as these do lead to larger consequences, I'm sure, in the spiritual world, which is why we see today the world is essentially uh, gazing with greater anxiety at Ukraine in that theater. And uh, hence, you know, well, there's a lot of things to discuss in that matter. Um, no, yeah, there's a... Uh... You, you can all tell already there's a lot of great stuff in the works here. We barely, like, you know, the content just flows, just flows. But I want people to, I want to take a quick step back. It was a, I think this is a good place to give, um, take a bit of a meta perspective as well. And for all of our non-Orthodox listeners, um, we'll provide all sorts of information, even texts and text and links and stuff that can perhaps give you a better context of the, of the groups we're talking about. We're trying to not get too, too, uh, too esoteric here. But um, one of the things that, I think some people that aren't Orthodox, I'm listening like, oh, so why do you think that everything that happens in the Orthodox Church has, like, you're telling me that you're going to be drawing every, you're going all these connections between the ecclesial life of your church and politics, and effectively, my honest answer, yes. But I think there are traditions that have at least valid claims from historical perspective to have their, I guess, historical metaphysic related to politics brought to the forefront. One of those, the Catholic Church has a history of that, and I would say the Islamic tradition between Orthodoxy, Catholicism, and Islam, these three um, traditions have very military, political, I guess, expressions and narratives that are very, very integral to their faith. And I think the best evidence that the Orthodox story is just, at least today in contemporary examples, 
This isn't a comprehensive argument for the definitive truth of orthodoxy over Catholicism, but from the context of our podcast and observing world events and which metaphysical Weltanschauung worldview is, is actually the one that is explaining what's going on today, the simple fact that the Pope tried to consecrate Russia for the fourth time or whatever it is to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and convert it to Catholicism, and of course nothing happened, is, is, is the proof in the pudding. And not only that, but you know who agrees with like half the stuff we're saying on this podcast? Pope Francis. He's literally said with his mouth, we we're living in the Third World War. Yet Pope Francis single-handedly is leading the largest Christian church towards a path of complete generate apostasy. And of course, the Catholic Church has been a problem since, as Orthodox, we would say the Great Schism. But this, 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 this I just don't think I just don't think it could be more obvious that Catholicism has fundamentally failed, at least in this geopol in this spiritual metapolitical realm. There, it, it's it's divorced from reality. There's it doesn't have there there is no longer a spiritual current running through. I think Catholicism's understanding of of world events. And again, that this that's that in and of itself is not an argument for the truth of a religion. But I think the presence of these holy hierarchs, the presence of these living prophets, the presence of these I wanted to just talk about how like Metropolitan Neophytos, I wasn't just plucking the words of a Cypriot hierarch to his people out of nowhere either. He addresses America. He says, Poor America, repent America. Metropolitan Neophytos um is a devoted um fan of Elder Ephraim and he explicitly talks about how the Ephraimite monastery, for those who don't know, Elder Ephraim, reposed in 2019, is a very saintly Greek monk who came to America and established over 18 monasteries in the U.S. and Canada, all of which are still operational. And he said that these would serve as spiritual outposts in the hard times to come. And I've been to that monastery, the closest Ephraimite monastery to me, it's about an hour away. And they, the monks there, you know, they, they view the world this way. You know, we have, um, when you talk to monastics and you talk to these people, they they understand, they hear these words, they see what's going on, they feel the energy, they hear the confessions and the words of the people out in the world, and they realize that they're going to need all the prayer and repentance that they can get to prepare for, for these harder times that are finally coming about. And that's why I think it's, I, that's why I think this is a fruitful endeavor. And I think, again, for those holy people that can really tune out of all of this, that's, that's fantastic. But in many ways, the scriptures and the saints, they do talk about how, you know, we will we will have guidance in these times. God will send those who, who are meant to be sent. You know, that's why, you know, St. Paisios, his prophecies are some of the most extensive, and we're really going to get into those in some future episodes. And he was sent for our time. There was times people, in his lifetime, people thought he was Elijah, and he, of course, vociferously denied that because it's not quite that time yet. But you can see why people would think that. He explicitly prophesied what we experienced with these injections. He explicitly talked about what we would what we would go through and on a private podcast or on our telegram we can talk about that more but these are this is just such a uh it's just such a blessing because if it wasn't for stuff like this these would be these would be unnavigable times and with with christ and with with what he sends us we're able to we're able to we're able to make it through and with with everything that's going on i just think that there's um whether it's the war, whether it's going to be these economic and energy, energy issues, it's just um, we're finally seeing like for, for for years people you could say people mocked I guess the religious and we're finally seeing the 
the pinnacle of secularism, this this jewel of, of of modernity, it's kind of starting to it's finally starting to be revealed as just, you know, just glass and not real diamond, I guess. And the religious is it's coming back in with a with a vengeance, I guess you could say, for for a bit of a crass term. Yeah, Conrad, would you say that the House of Cards is finally crumbling in terms of, you know, uh, like the West has built its foundation on the killing of kings and the denouncing of Christ since the French Revolution? And by the West, I mean, uh, you know, just the West, Western European world. And unfortunately, I'm not saying all the folks in the West, Central Europe or America are bound by this, but we are we are all products of that given culture. I'm would you say it's finally sort of collapsing under its own weight? Essentially, it's built up these expectations of liberalism and world peace and democracies don't fight each other. And finally, we've won after the 90s, the end of history, as Francis Fukuyama writes so eloquently in his now debunked work. Um, now, now, when the going gets rough, the I guess I'm, I'm noticing just a lot of panic and... Uh, you know, Metropolitan Neophytos, his words, I think, are even more more so addressed to us people in the West than, say, even folks in his own homeland in Greece and people in Russia who already um, do know that times can be tough and that Christ is the light that will lead you through these uh, times of tribulations. But us in the West, we... All we've known, all we've ever known is that uh, economic prosperity is the greatest thing, um, you know, Things can be resolved through an increase in GDP over a number of years, and economic prosperity is the be-all and end-all. Liberal freedoms will make you feel good rather than attending church. I think Metropolitan Neophytos, some of his words and some of the words of the other Greek hierarchs we will discuss at a later date, they are essentially uh, like a light that we should follow through the desert as Moses followed the beam of light out of Egypt. Um, it's worth considering, even though... Of course, sometimes this material is hard to access because, unfortunately, YouTube and other social media, some of the popular social media platforms, do censor uh, this sort of content. So we're going to try and remain in in a sort of in a certain um, at least we're going to work in a certain sense uh, with this with the system, abide by the TOS, um, not break any any of the rules provided to us by our hosts, and see if we can get the message out that perhaps uh, some of the clips on YouTube, you know, removed for various reasons, uh, won't, you know, unfortunately cannot push forward. Um, what do you think about that, Conrad, in terms of, uh, you know, actually, you know, remaining uncancelled and, you know, passing on the message of these great saints? Because essentially we're simply just paraphrasing the words of people who are far greater than us in both spiritual and, say, even political knowledge. Oh yeah, and again, we'll be providing all the exact sources. We're, we we don't want anyone to think that we are misinterpreting what the saints say. There's all sorts of traditions that are we we'd even consider very valid that we're going to do a lot more research on before we bring to you because we don't want to put anything dubious forward. But regarding terms of service, oh yeah, we it, it's foolish to let um to let purity be the enemy of 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 a, of a platform in the sense that we have the ability through Telegram and through Substack to tell you what we need to tell you when we need to tell you. And all YouTube and Rumble do is allow most people to hear 99% of what we want them to hear everywhere and then be able to, the people that are going to appreciate it, then they're going to be able to find, have an easier time finding the other stuff that perhaps we can't say here. And I think um, 
with what you said, what you were talking about earlier as well, I think um, about the end of the end of this this modern world that we've seen since since they started killing the kings in the French Revolution and even before that in like the English Revolution, really. The um, Putin's speech, like bringing this full circle, even to what we started talking about, Putin's speech in many ways did that. And I've been one of the thesis that I think the moment that um, Russia moved in to the DPR and LPR, and at the very least, the moment they recognized them as independent, I think that was the, the, the at least the, um, the phenomenological death knell. Because in my opinion, I think the fact that a superpower can, or that a power can take military force, take territory, hold it, and then immediately erupts, erect society back again, like that, that is supposed to not be possible in the liberal world order. It's supposed to either be so egregious that it immediately triggers a righteous response from the international community, or it's supposed to be so bad on the ground that it's just not tenable because of intelligence and the, the ability for color revolutions, as well as just the propagandization of the masses towards this, towards this specter of secular liberalism. And the moment Putin proved that that wasn't true, and that a country could take back what is theirs... And that the people that are in that area would, by and large, support it because of nothing more than their ethnic and historical and religious ties. Like, it it's over. Like, there's like the, it 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 can't stand against that. Like, once that cat's out of the bag, like what who who's gonna fall for it anymore, right? Like if like if it's proven that it can be done, it can be done. And sure, not every little country can stand up against the U.S. But the fact that it's now been proven that it can be done, that's why they're freaking out. That's why they're blowing up pipelines. That's why they're talking about banning AR-15s again in America right before an election cycle for some reason. But it's, it's, it, it truly is the end. And, that, and this idea that like, like, and that's scary from the perspective of a dissident because the, as the regime realizes it's, it's near its end, it will become very, very, very unpredictable and dangerous. But it's, it's still objectively true that like, Putin knows he's ringing, he's ringing the, the funeral bells here. And I think he just hopes he's alive enough long enough to see to see what comes next. Yeah, I think it's it's an end of a certain age and hence the anxiety that we kept talking about, you know, we feel the we feel history moving at the moment. History has stood still for a long time now. Maybe not for the separate peoples, for example, the Christians of Iraq who experienced the, the American invasion, the um, Yugoslavians. Yeah, that's right, exactly. It's for the for the Serbian and the Christian people of the Balkans experiencing the United States bombing them through the 90s must have been just as apocalyptic as being a regular Ukrainian citizen living somewhere near Crimea and Kherson, of course, keeping to traditional Christian views, but not really dabbling in politics and then seeing Russian drones and planes fly overhead. That's, I suppose most of us in the West have been uh, protected from that sort of, um, that sort of experience. And now finally we see histories moving. Some of our own countries are shifting internally and even externally sending money, tons of aid, inflated printed cash overseas to support a regime that we've never seen in a land which we'll never visit. And it's just, it feels like we're, um, yeah, we're at the forefront of it all. And it's worth speaking about. It's worth speaking about some of the events that occurred prior to this and some of the potential future events that will occur after. And of course, the traditions which uh, will give us enough foundation to orient ourselves um, through these tribulations. I think as well, me and Conrad over the next few sessions will discuss some of the implications on 
you know the the broader the broader the broader Western world because some of these events they're of course occurring in Eastern Europe which has uh, very little to do with the West and you know they have a different culture in Ukraine but how does this affect say the United States which you know is is going headfirst into the 2024 elections I mean that's sure to be um, you know quite quite an explicit time we have uh, things such as Joe Biden to discuss Joe Biden's Catholicism there is uh, you know the the various jurisdictional diasporas in in the United States and their opinions on say world events are very different and they vary from each other um, there's also things such as the Middle Eastern conflict the the state of events between Israel and Palestine the the status quo they are very unhinged and at times uh, disruptive and of course Christians Orthodox Christians getting caught in between that um, is always uh, quite painful to witness but um, these things occur regardless of our opinions on them. We, of course, have to just pray and uh, be um, just be cautious about what we what we see on the news. You know, always worth fact checking all of these events and not exactly taking taking things uh, taking things uh, for their for their word. Like especially from mainstream media, I, I'd say secondary media sources. Conrad, you being a journalist by profession, would you say that it's worth double checking at least as a christian even though you know we are told to be both peaceful and uh, you know somewhat trusting assuming folks are telling us things in good faith but um what, what what's your opinion on say the mainstream media at the moment from a country such as the united states does it reflect the christian vision of you know reality or is it is it mod and lies and deception I think most of our listeners would have a have a strong answer to that. And I just think more important than turning off... Okay, if you're a boomer listening to this, turn off the TV. Turn it off. I'm, I'm, I'm addressing you right now. Turn it off. To everyone else, it's not so much about turning it off or turning it on or what you're doing. You need to inoculate yourself against propaganda with a worldview. That's, that's, that's the entire project of someone like Jay Dyer, who both of us, I think, have learned a lot from. The you will have you will be like a like an ant on a cracker in the pacific if you go into the world of epistemology news truth religion ethics war analysis of current events relationships if you go in just thinking you know i'm just going to assess every situation and come to a logical conclusion about you know the facts like that that you you're going to get eaten alive and you're going to end up believing something so stupid that when you're 65 and realizing you believed it your whole life, you're going to be shocked. And so if, if you can truly adopt a, a, a Weltanschauung, which in my opinion is it needs to be a religion and a Christian Christianity and Orthodox Christianity, but this isn't necessarily an apologetics podcast. It's not, not an apologetics podcast, but you, once you can adopt something that you participate in on a weekly basis, which of course Christian church allows you to do, that allows you to participate in a, in a continual culture. We have apostolic succession as well as a high value placed on family. So you're in touch with your lineage, you're in touch with the Christian lineage, and, and then the wealth of the wisdom of that institution comes along with it, of course, the wisdom of the institution established by Christ himself. And that's the words of the saints, that there are saints in all times. If you want to learn about what was happening in a time period, you can find a saint that was alive then and understand what was going on through their perspective. We have a calendar. Every day is sanctified in the church. This is how you inoculate yourself against, against propaganda. And the, um, 
the fact that people so much this is a tired talking point at this point but you know the 2020 george floyd race riots Mm -hmm. people say this is looking starting to look a lot like a religion guys i think wokeness is becoming a religion yeah that's the point because they need to keep ramping it up to where it takes up just as much of your life as another religion or Velton Shang would, or else it isn't a powerful enough perspective to be all-encompassing for you to apply to every single aspect of your life, to view it through that lens, which is if you talk to someone who's fallen for all the propaganda and, you know, you know, thinks that racism, sexism, and uh, like uh, religious bigotry are the biggest problems in the world, you sound like you're talking to someone like that there's this completely divorced from reality but it's it's fundamentally believed to the at a religious level for them which is why they get so angry when you challenge it but that's 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 again the big project of this podcast is there's a mod of fantastic geopolitical podcasts out there that just do a good job analyzing the facts on the ground and we believe that the facts on the ground point to our perspective i could i believe that i could convince you of my perspective based on solely on a geopolitical analysis but that's not particularly useful what's useful is to be able to understand the world that you live in, in your time and place, that God put you in for a reason. And that's that's kind of what we're trying to do here. We're trying to really, there's a worldview that we think is true and not enough people have, and it does help you understand what's going on. Yeah, I'd also add that, um, you know, despite despite the variety of traditions available to you, you could, you could be a, um, a Muslim from Palestine or the West Bank or someone following the Shia traditions of Persia and Iran, but or perhaps even, even an Orthodox Jew living in Israel and Haifa or Jerusalem, or maybe a Western Christian living in, uh, say, New York, attending church and just cringing at the fact that Joe Biden is in communion with yourself, apparently, according to his bishop. Regardless of where you're coming from, I think it's important to at least try to view reality through your perspective, see if things align, see if... Um, See if your particular denomination, your church, your tradition aligns with uh, what's actually happening in the world, and if your tradition actually has the answers that will help you view the world in a, you know, uh, in an accurate way. I, me, and Conrad, of course, we believe that the Orthodox Church does provide us with the most clear and uh, transparent way of, you know, viewing reality, and we sort of build our lives around that tradition. You know, orthodoxy to us, or Christianity comes first. Um, geopolitics and other things are simply viewed through that realm and through that uh, paradigm. We we acknowledge the fact that other traditions have their own ways of, you know, uh, seeing seeing the world and how it works. And this includes, of course, the liberal Western European and the tradition that NATO seems to be following at the moment. Um, especially, you know, considering all of the uh, secular western liberal values that they're pushing upon the entire world being be it muslim jewish christian we see this uh, encroachment of um this woke this woke religious tradition and it's somewhat spiritual in nature it's not just materialistic i think we're realizing this in the great uh, debates that um are occurring online even the uh classical republican debates about you know um the current uh, transgender issues things of that nature I think we we're finally realizing that the world is not about atheism versus religion. It's about it's a it's a clash of civilizations, and it has been since the dawn of time, since the time Noah stepped off the ark and his sons spread out throughout the world. Some people have fallen away from the faith, and that falling away has led to strife. I think there's a reason why people didn't did not follow Christ in the first place. That these traditions are 
you know, people, people are sinful, and these traditions will lead to a Samuel Huntington type clash of civilizations. So it's worth considering, especially your tradition, where you come from, and how that aligns with modern events, because modern events are uh, groundbreaking. They're, the world is shifting from under our feet at the moment. It's not, it's not unimportant to you know, um, open up your mind and maybe explore a different opinion. Perhaps uh, if you're a Muslim, a Jew, a pagan, a Buddhist, it's worth thinking about how how all of this correlates to your tradition. I think it's, um, yeah, and of course me and Conrad will provide a unique kind of perspective in some of our dis discussions on modern events through a Christian lens, but it's also worth viewing it, viewing some of these events through your traditions and seeing if they provide just as much clarity as ours does, because we believe, you know, without the Christian tradition, modernity, and even the postmodern world, you wouldn't be able to navigate through it. So I think that's an important consideration, um, regardless of what denomination or church or religion our viewers come from. Don't you think, Conrad? I agree, and I really like how you contextualized, you know, the the... I guess, ontological geopolitical struggle in rooting it in Noah and rooting it in where it really comes from. And that's, that's so important. And I think we, like in our concept today, we're very much against, you know, the Bolshevik is kind of the, it's been, it's one of the most recent antichrists, like, you know, in, in Orthodox tradition, we believe, you know, there are multiple, many antichrists that will come throughout society that embody that spirit. And the Bolshevik revolution and the, and the communist regime in the early 20th century produced, you know, more martyrs than almost any other time in Christian history. And understanding the the root of that being when the nation of Israel itself, or the, at least the uh, many of the people of, his, of Christ's own tribe at his time, rejected the kingdom, rejected truth. They, rege they, they embraced revolution. They embraced democracy. They embraced, they embraced Barabbas. You know, they embraced, they said, crucify him. As uh, even John, someone like John Milton, who I have many disagreements with him, he himself basically painted Satan as the first Democrat, as the first, you know, the fall from hell, from heaven, and the one-third of the angels as the first accession to democracy, as the first, uh, the first uh, time the popular will was ever expressed in any, in time and space, and, or not even in time and space, in any kind of metaphysical reality. And the, and that spirit is carried on today in the spirit of, in the spirit of, of revolution against, against, in my opinion, what was a, a period, a God-instated period of Christian imperium from Constantine to Tsar Nicholas II. And we saw what happened with Christ, that pattern mirrored at the beginning of this century. And now almost like a little over exactly a hundred years later, we see that new phase. This, this world war that was followed by this enormous, bizarre pandemic. The symbolism is, in my opinion, off the charts. But the, the, the fact that we live in that and understanding its root, like that's, that's what it's all about. That's why it's important. Because if you can understand it at that level, that what you're seeing today has its roots in when humanity killed truth, killed the logos, when reality, as Jordan Peterson says, you know, when when the myth and the reality touched, that was Christ, when that all happened, the, when, we, when we killed that, that's the spirit that I guess you could say we're seeing finally rear it. it it's a good thing because it is, it, the, the, it's, its actualization is both falling, but we're also going to see it return in, a, in, in more of a way than it was before. But in some ways towards a positive end, because as Metropolitan Neophytos has said, we know who wins in the end. Christ wins in the end.
Amen. I think it's not a time for despair. It's not a time to be overly scared. It's a time to be careful and vigilant. Of course, um, viewing modern events, even viewing the news, has its own troubles, which uh, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, New Hierarch, even mentions in his um, inaugural uh, address to the Orthodox Church outside of Russia, when he says that, you know, uh, make sure you... Make sure you limit the amount of news you consume from the mainstream media in regards to the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, which we began speaking about here. He says there are various opinions, and they all differ from one another. And it's it's very it's very dangerous to put your soul on the line when you start really delving into these things. Which is why myself and Conrad we also aim to you know provide at least at least the somewhat we seek to come come at this from a christian perspective because uh if we tried to at least be the most unbiased and objective sources in this discourse uh it wouldn't work for us um it would be untrue to ourselves it would be untrue to who we are and we just need to come at this from a personal and a christian perspective in order to um, provide the best content that content that we can provide um just wanted to mention um the particular the particular ending of the world the eschatological issues described by conrad when he mentions the antichrists and uh how the last 100 years have become worse and this is also viewed i think through the lens of say um through the lens of world history we see every time a great orthodox empire has experienced tribulation whether it be the roman empire or the russian empire or even the regular small kingdoms such as the Serbian, the Bulgarian, the Georgian, every time an Orthodox kingdom is affected in some negative way, there are, you know, it, there are spiritual repercussions in the world. The world becomes slightly a darker place. I think there's um, some things to consider there in regards to this uh, momentous time we live in. Um, just wanted to mention, Conrad, uh, your views on the near future, at least how this gas line and Putin's recent speech, how will how will it sort of affect um, the you know the state of things? Do you think single things will escalate, or will we have to wait until maybe after winter for Russia to choose its next step in this great chess game? You read my mind because I'm thinking we're about to start wrapping up. We got to circle back to what we started this whole thing with, which is what the hell's going on, and that's. That's 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 the question of the day. It's is is Putin in a week gonna blitzkrieg towards Odessa, or are we gonna just, or is he just gonna really, really squeeze it out of Kiev? You know, maybe he does threaten to turn off some of their energy. Maybe he does have to use that option. And I think we're going to we're already in map phase. I think all of all of us all of us guys are into geopolitics. We're in the we love when maps change just be for no other reason than it's it's interesting and we're. We're entering into a big, a big stage of map redrawing, and I wouldn't be surprised if the next stage of, of international involvement is more overt, I guess, hints at places like Poland and Hungary and Romania getting in on uh, what you might call the pie that is Ukraine. And I've talked about that before. I mean, even Viktor Orban's foreign minister has hinted at incorporating Transcarpathia into Hungary. And I think... In many ways, we have to also view Putin in the context of his his kind of nat this this whole conflict in the in the context of the nationalist revival of Putin, and because in many ways Putin came to power as a con as like a 
as kind of a compromise candidate with the West. And for many years, he was listed on the WF website and was, for all intents and purposes, I think before the Chechen conflict, going along with a sort of slow incorporation of Russia as a very much secondary power in the West. But like you said, with his 2007 Munich speech, Anatoly Karlin talks a lot about this in his fantastic and extensive article, Russia's Nationalist Turn, which is from 2018. I, recognize, I recommend you all read that. I'll link it at some point on my, on my Twitter, which you should follow at Nomrad. But the, um, he talks about how at that time Putin kind of, it, it, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but in some way it seems that Putin realized the stakes of the civilizational battle he was in. And again, Putin is not perfect. We've said good things about his faith. We both have, I think, extensive criticisms of Putin from the perspective that he compromises on his Christian Weltanschauung. But that's another topic I think we'll talk about, the whole Putin perspective at at a later date in an extended conversation. But that shift is very important to this because since that, we've, we've seen this, like Putin has slowly but surely embraced a nationalist vision of Russia, a Christian nationalist vision of Russia, even somewhat ethno-nationalist vision of Russia. There's been almost no, in the past few years, prosecutions of former like hate crime level laws about, um, you know, certain things spoken about uh, identity and whatnot in the Russian Federation. That's all been kind of put to the side, and the the state of like Putin has gone all in, especially since his latest speech where he, you know, called the West satanic for what it does to little girls and little boys and its view on gender and, and, and religion. Like he's very much put his foot down and, and, and he, who knows how many years ago he decided he wasn't going to go back, but there's obviously no going back now. Like, I don't think, like, I can't see any Western leader welcoming him into their borders at this point. Thank you, Conrad. I think Putin has definitely crossed the line recently, and so it's a little bit nerve-wracking actually uh, recording this conversation just literally mere hours afterwards. We have no idea what will happen tomorrow or even next week, so I think almost every weekly episode that Conrad will host for um, World War Now, we're going to have uh, very serious updates and comments on exactly how all of this will play out. I think there's a lot to speak about, and um, times are getting very interesting. Let's not forget that. Um, let's not forget that. Of course, uh, f- you should follow us on Twitter. That uh, most of our content, no matter you know if it's uh, audio or written, uh, we'll be providing our personal perspective. I think Conrad's articles uh, they open up quite a different view of how things should. Um, should be looked at at least from a geopolitical angle um and it's worth exploring his substack uh do follow conrad on twitter um myself of course i post some interesting news regarding russia especially being a russian myself um regarding the current ukrainian crisis i do come from a more biased perspective so be aware of that and uh just prepare yourselves for you know some of the um things that are coming in the near future that so I guess Conrad will um, make sure to keep everybody informed and, and try to summarize each week, each weekly event or at least series of events and world news as we, uh, you know, progress towards this uh, through this time of strife. I'm not sure what else to call it. It it's a great time of tribulations. It really is world war now, is it not? And I think uh, 
I think if you guys want to see more of this, obviously weekly is how we have to start this out. You know, we both work, but subscribe, share. If you want us to be, if, if this gets popular as it gets, as it grows, we will be able to provide you more content. You know, if you give us the freedom with your support to do more, we will be able to do more because we, it's, 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 it's obvious. We have, the content is there for daily updates. The content is there for daily content, which we will be bringing you, of course, on our Twitters, on Telegram, and even sometimes on Substack. But it really is. It's, it's, it's exciting times. Um, I'm really excited to have Dimitri on the team for this. And we're going to have a lot of guests on as well. Like every week we will have an episode and there might even be uh, other episodes involving a guest when we can get them on. So that will, usually that won't even affect the, the regular content. So, uh, yeah, eventually the paywall will be coming to the Substack. This is, of course, a full free podcast, but I'm going to leave it to Dimitri, I guess, for one or two final words, and then we'll then we'll send it off. Yeah, I think thank you, everybody, for listening, especially um, those of you coming from the West, coming from a different tradition to our, to our own. It is uh, It may be a little bit alien, some of the things we are saying, but um, we will be providing sources, of course, and it's if there are any questions regarding some of the issues brought up by ourselves, um, we are willing to clarify. Um, I think the audio podcast is a great companion to some of the uh, world events occurring at the moment, and it's also a great companion to some of the written content you'll be seeing. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say use uh, World World War Now as a primary source of knowledge, but maybe maybe a perspective, uh, quite a different one. Uh, contrast us with some of the other content released at the moment, because I think there are great things to come, and we're going to focus especially uh, in much detail on the world events surrounding the Ukraine and Europe, and of course the entire world. There's, there's a lot to discuss. I'm very excited to um, at least assist Conrad in his uh, quest to provide you guys with some top-level journalism. And uh, there are great things to come, guys. Stay tuned. Thank you, Dimitri. And yeah, I mean, like, I, like I've said in my Twitter thread, was anybody saying it was World War II when Hitler started the Anschluss? No, but that's about where we are right now. You can think about it like that. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at World War Now underscore. Follow me at Nomrad. Follow Dimitri at O-C-A-N-O-N-I-S-T, O-Canonist, O-C, Orthodox Canonist. Uh, be sure to follow us on Substack, uh, World War Now on Substack. Uh, we have a Telegram as well. We'll be linking that. Uh, please, please share this with all of your friends. Send it to everybody you know. Even if you don't think they'll be interested, they'll still click on it and it helps us out. Send the Substack around. That'll be linked in the description everywhere. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're really, really looking forward to joining you on this journey in these in these unprecedented and truly truly interesting times so i just want to say god bless and i hope to see you next time